This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twang. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. A story loved by many. A story ended too soon. A story with no ending. But we heard you. You asked. And now we deliver. David, David, please stop. Just stop. I have to die in order for our daughter to be born. Just, ugh! Just what did you plan on telling me this? Do you want to explain why it's taken so long to kill one little girl? What are you saying? The Queen. She's launching an attack. She's coming for you, Amber. David? already started, but I am not the one who started it. Now get out of my house! Amber launches an energy ball at war. Do it! Now! Hey guys, welcome to episode 204 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. 
Man, oh man, this is going to be a long show. Why, you say? I say, why? Because, first of all, we have a very long episode for the for just our regular story. Then we also have an interview with Keith Lender from the Bothell Hill House. Mm. He wanted to come back on. Of course, he's been on twice before. What do you want to come back on? Because Ghost Adventures did uh, a Screaming Room edition where they revisited the episode of his house. Mm-hmm. And where they didn't find anything, and they were kind of dogging him out a little bit on the show. So he wanted to come back on and talk about, you know, what other groups had found out since Zach and him didn't find anything, the other evidence that was found by other groups and all that. So we've got that on tonight as well. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So awesome. All right. So first of all, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you for everything you guys and girls do. Yes, thank you guys so much. We're praying for you all every day, especially our policemen. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just dumbfounded. I don't even know what to say anymore. <laughs> I just don't. I don't know what to say. It's just that we, we, like I said, we pray for you guys so hard. And we want this world to be back peaceful and Things like that, and it seems like every day gets a little harder to deal with, but... Yeah. As usual, like I said, we support our military and our all of our civil servants and our police officers. We do realize there are some bad eggs out there, so unfortunately, a few bad apples ruins the whole barrel and uh and it should not be like that yeah, we at just, all. You know, our whole thing is, we're just like anything else, we're not going to judge protesters by rioters. Because that's not fair to judge people who are out there protesting peacefully by the few that riot. We're not going to judge all the policemen by a few that doesn't, you mm-hmm. know, don't do things the way that they should do. Uh, and we're we're just going to judge people on their individual merit. That's just the way we've always done stuff, and that's the way we want to be judged, and that's the way we judge people. So it's not fair to stereotype anybody. It's uh, not regardless of the situation. But we still love you all very much, and. Like I say, we pray for you guys, and we will make it through, and hell yeah. How okay. about that? Good enough. <laughs> All right, of course, like I said, we've uh, we've had a couple of people reach out to us in the last couple of days that are struggling uh, with just various things going on in life, and uh, we just want people to know that we are here for you. We've had a couple of people say, hey, you know, you guys say you're here for us, and you know, we just wanted to see if that was actually the case or if that was just talk. And uh, as they found out that we're here for you. Yep. And the group is there for you. And um, if you'd rather talk to somebody, you know, outside of us or the group, then there's always the suicide hotline number. Mm-hmm. It's 800-273-8255. Or you can text 741-741. Um, there's always people out there for you guys. And please Feel free to reach out to us day or night. We'll give you our phone numbers. It doesn't matter. We just want to be there to help you guys because we love you. Right. Uh, Also, at the very beginning of the show, you heard a a preview for Hillbilly Horror House, who did do come back and do a final chapter. Mm -hmm. So that is now available. So uh, you guys go listen to that. Thanks. All right. Let's get into this story because this one is uh, bonga, chocked, bonga. It's chocked full of stuff. Good. So tonight's story fits into the, I'm going to say, historical true crime. And I say this because when I think true crime, I think more like classic cases of like Jack the Ripper and Ed Gein and John Wayne Gacy and all those big name serial killers and stuff were out there. 
or there's these individual cases that are kind of plucked from recent news or the headlines. This story that we're going to do tonight would probably fit into to that category if they had Dateline or podcasts back in the 1840s. Oh, how cool would that be? <laughs> but they did Can you imagine? Yeah, they like would this... have it, and they said, we filmed this whole episode, but there's no TVs or anything to watch them on. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how good would the real scoop be, you know? Yeah, no kidding. It probably would have been pretty good, because I think this was about the time that Barbara Walters was starting out. The 1800s? Yeah, that's probably about close. <laughs> I think she's approximately 273 years old now. Well, so. I doubt it. She was a good reporter. I like her. So tonight we're going to cover the Black Donnellys. I'm going to assume you're not familiar with this case whatsoever. No. Sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't want to disappoint you, you know. Yeah. To say that this family was a bunch of troublemakers and fighters is probably an understatement. When I make a claim like that, it's because I feel pretty good about the statement being true based on several hours of research that I did this week. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, even going back over the last year, and when I say that, I've been working on this story off and on for probably the last 10, 11, 12 months. No kidding. I'm completely fascinated by this case, and I want to really get a feel for the family and for the situation before I did an episode on it. So I'm going to tell you as much as I possibly can about the family and the events that made them so, uh, I guess we'll say infamous is probably the best word. Mm -hmm. The paranormal side of the episode will be coming up, but there's a lot of history and story and trust me this is all fascinating so it's going to keep your interest but there's definitely a paranormal side to this just uh stick with me i know some of these true crime type stories we do don't have a paranormal side or it's very little but this one's actually pretty good and hefty at the end okay so i'm excited to tell you about one of canada's most famous stories the donnelly's now the donnelly stories has been the subject of plays books and there's even a tv show about it no no kidding. which i didn't know until i started researching a little more and every time i would look up the black donnelly's the tv show would come up and i was like eh, well that's not really but i haven't seen an episode of it so i don't know if it's any good or not so let's get into some details the donnelly's which were made up of james and johanna they lived in ireland and there was a lot of conflict in ireland at the time getting land there was virtually impossible mm-hmm so several immigrants from Europe were having similar problems as what the Donnellys were having there in Ireland. So they were migrating to Ontario, Canada. This is exactly what the Donnellys chose to do. Just like the other immigrants, they chose to come here. Now, life in this part of the country was really rough and even for the strongest pioneers. So you could imagine what it was like to come over if, if this is something you hadn't done and said, hey, I think we're just going to come over to this place. And you had no experience out there trying to fend for yourself. And you mean like for the as far as the terrain and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, everything. The terrain, the weather, everything. Mm, okay. And so they, they wanted to come over here, though, because the opportunity was there that they couldn't get at home. So it was worth it to them. I found several different dates of the Donnelly's actual arrival in Canada. But it looks like James Johanna and James Jr., they're who was their only child at the time, got here somewhere between 1842 and 1846. Shortly after this, their second son, William, was born. They had very little money, but they had a really good, strong work ethic when they moved to Biddulph Township. And this is just, a, Biddulph Township is just a little bit north of London, Ontario. And it looks like that they moved to Biddulph 
1847. Now, this is a very important part of the story. They started homesteading on a piece of property that was mostly wilderness, and it was beside uh, a, a road called Romaine Line. Okay. Okay. Of course, this was in the Biddle Township, and it was near the town of Lucan. Okay. They did not own this land. They didn't even try to find out who owned the land. Oh, gosh. They just put their butts on there and went for it? <laughs> yeah, well, what happened, to, the, the guy who owned it did not live in the area. He's what we call an absent landlord. Oh, gotcha. So he owned it, but didn't live there, so mm-hmm. he had no clue. No way was keeping an eye on it for him. So he had no idea that the Donnellys were actually squatting on his property. The Donnellys, in the meantime, were clearing the land. They were building a farm. They farmed here for 10 years. <laughs> Without this guy knowing? Without them knowing. <laughs> so at, at that time, they, over the course of that 10 years, had six more children. Six. Five boys and the only girl, Jenny. They had eight children altogether when it was all said and done. Because remember, they already had yeah. James Jr. and they had William. Yeah. And then they had these six more. So out of eight children, seven more boys. Sounds like my dad's house. Well, I mean, I guess that would work out really well, though, if you're looking for somebody to, you to know, if you're looking to farm work. and I stuff mean, like farm that. Work, so. land work, farm work. They busted their tails over the 10 years. They built this property into something that they were proud of, and they were actually prospering. That's when everything turned bad. Uh, wait, what's his name decided to show up, I guess? Sort of. So the owner of the property, again, not knowing that the Donnellys were living there, sold the property to a gentleman by the name of Patrick Farrell. In, in 1857. I almost said 1957. In 1857. So Patrick was living in Ireland when he bought the land. He hadn't seen it either. He just... Yeah, it does, yeah, yeah, there you go. Imagine his surprise when he shows up and the Donnellys were on his property, farm and all. Patrick was a pretty big guy. He approached James Donnelly and told him that he wanted the Donnellys off of his land. Well... James was much smaller, like we said, than Patrick, but that didn't stop him from kicking Patrick's ass. Oh. Laid him out. The whole time he was, he was, you know, laying this can of whoop-ass on Patrick, the Donnelly family was behind him cheering him on. hmm It was obvious that he wasn't going to be able to force them off the land with, with you know, fist or force or yeah. anything like that, so he took them to court. Well, the judge did what he thought was the fair thing to do, which, you know, neither side was happy with, he made a compromise. The judge felt that the Donnelly spent 10 years clearing a part of that land and making it a farm, so he felt that even though Patrick Farrell owned the land, he was going to give the part that the Donnellys had been working on to the Donnellys, and Patrick could keep everything else. Patrick was pissed. Well, wait a minute, how much land was it again? I don't know how much land it was. Oh, yeah, it must have been a lot, though. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure it was a big amount, but I don't I don't know, like, acres or yeah. anything like that. I don't know how big it is. Mm-hmm. But I know theirs was big enough to have a farm and all that stuff. So, yeah. I mean, it's got to be, you know, several acres. So, he said Patrick was pissed. All he knew is that he paid for all this land, and he was losing out because Donnelly's decided to start farming land that was not theirs in the first place. You could understand why he would be upset. Right. At the same time, James Donnelly was just as pissed. He made it a point to let Patrick know through personal attacks, like, you know, killing his livestock, he shot at him, 
And he burnt his farm down. <gasps> I mean, his barn down. Oh, my gosh. So they were not good neighbors, to say the least. So Donnelly was charged for doing all this stuff, but he was never convicted. Later that year, things would actually escalate when tensions came to a head. So the two men were at a barn raising. They called it a barn raising bee. It's like where they have a big party, you know, to come raise a barn for a neighbor. Everybody gets together. Everybody mm-hmm. builds the barn. Mm-hmm. But there's food and drinks and yeah. stuff like that. So they have fun with it. All the men had been drinking all day long. Patrick and James started arguing. One thing led to another. It became a full-blown fist fight. And at that time, as I stated earlier, you know, Patrick was much bigger than James. And Patrick was kind of getting the best of James this time. He already knew what he was dealing with, so mm-hmm. he's getting the best of it. That's when James picked up a hand spike and shoved it into Patrick's head, killing him instantly. Now, from my understanding of what I looked up, a hand spike was more like a crowbar. So just Ow. picture a crowbar just jamming it in somebody's head. Oh, my gosh. But Okay. But the Donnellys had to understand where he had to go where he was coming from. They just moved there, didn't know, didn't ask. They just moved there. Yeah, well, see, but that's the whole point. And as we get more and more into the story, you're going to find that that's kind of the way, you know, they were. Okay. You know, they they moved there and just decided they were going to go flop on a piece of property. I mean, without even asking if somebody owned it. So, I right. mean, that was, their, you know, their intentions from the get-go was they didn't, they didn't they care. They didn't care. They didn't care. Now James is a wanted man, so he fled into the wilderness. The next part comes straight out of a sitcom, though, when you think about it. So shortly after James Donnelly disappears, neighbors notice that there was a very strange-looking woman in a bonnet that was starting to farm in the Donnelly's field. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was James in disguise working the farm. <laughs> he spent an entire winter in the woods and then turned himself into the police. The judge sentenced him to death. Oh! <gasps> Oddly enough, though, this was changed to seven years in Kingston Penitentiary. So I I really couldn't find out much information on why it went from the yeah, death penalty to just seven years. It's kind of a drastic change. But yeah, but that's what happened. So trust me, the, the death of Patrick Farrell is just the start of this story. So during James's seven years in prison, his sons grew up hard and fast. Johanna raised them to be fighters, dirty fighters. She taught them to win at all costs, and that included going for the eyes or going for the groin. These boys were extremely tough, to say the least. Johanna's motto was hit first and talk later. There was a saying, the farther one lives down Roman Line Road, the tougher one is, and the Donnellys live at the end of that road. Mm. So everybody knew it. They They were like their own little mafia down there. So the Donnelly boys weren't just fighters, they were also thieves vandals. Well, that's not cool. Neighbors constantly had their tools and supplies turned up missing, but that was the least of their problems. The people in the area that the Donnelly boys saw as rivals really had it bad. Their cattle would be poisoned, their horses mutilated, and they would set their barns on fire. Most knew it was the Donnelly boys, but no one wanted to ever confront them for fear of making matters even worse. Townspeople learned the hard way that it was not smart to turn the Donnellys into the authorities. So, you asked the authorities to help and they went out and talked to them. They already knew what was up and you had to suffer the repercussions. A local farmer by the name of Bob McLean 
he tried to press charges against them, and he said he had, I guess he had some tools stolen at some point. Mm-hmm. So he goes and tells the police, he presses charges, and his house was set on fire, his horse's throats were slit, his barn was burned down, and his cattle were poisoned. Oh my gosh, it just sounds be- like Roadhouse. Just yeah, Roadhouse. <laughs> in fairness... There was violence and arson everywhere in Biddulph Township at the time, and the Donnelly boys didn't do all of it. So there was a bunch of other bad eggs mm-hmm. in that area. It was just a violent place, plain and simple. But there was no doubt that the Donnellys established themselves as the toughest of the tough, and that only changed for the worse when James Sr. got out of jail and returned home. He found the toughest gang in town waiting for him, his family. We mentioned at the beginning that one of the reasons that the Donnellys had moved to Canada was because of all the conflicts in Ireland. Now, most of these conflicts were between the Protestants and the Catholics back in those days. And then the other conflicts were pretty much the Irish against the English. Well, Biddulph Township had a very high Irish settler population. And that meant some of those conflicts started over again in Canada because if they didn't like each other in Ireland, just mm-hmm. because they moved to a different place, they st- you know, wasn't going to mean that they were going to start getting along. All right. For example, in Ireland, the Donnellys were known as Blackfeet. That was a term that was given to Irish Catholics who wanted to be peaceful and chose not to fight either the Protestants or the English. So they're just like Switzerland. We're neutral. Okay. You know? We know we're Catholic, but we're not going. We don't really have a big problem with the Protestants, and we don't have a big problem with the English. Therefore, we're just staying out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why they were known as the Black Donnellys. So it came from shortened version of Blackfeet. So Blackfeet were, like I said, the people who over there chose not to take a stand and not to fight and just live their life the way it was. So the group who did fight were known as the White Boys, and the White Boys did not like Blackfeet. And then keep, it's important to point out that all these people were white. It had nothing to do with color. So when you hear black feet, all that, it's not a mm-hmm. race thing. It was just a term that was given to them. So they were, they were all white. As a matter of fact, they hated them even more than they did the Protestants. And they looked at the black feet as traitors. So that's why they pretty much hated them. And that's why even over here in Canada, it was still going to be a problem. Because they still were looked at as traitors. Therefore, it was inevitable that the feuding was going to pick right back up again in Canada where it left off in, in uh, Ireland. In Biddulph, it wasn't just a large Irish population. It was almost a perfect balance of white boys versus black feet. So it was 50-50. So that definitely was set up for, for big feuding. So the Donnellys cared more about money than they did politics. Therefore, they didn't care who they dealt with there, if they were Catholics or if they were Protestant or or what have you. And that only seemed to make matters worse. They just liked the fact that, you know, they they looked at it from the standpoint of whoever can buy their goods. Mm -hmm. Their money was good to them. They didn't care where it came from. And like I said, then the people who already had a problem with them, that made it even worse. Because it's like, okay, so now you're Catholic and you're dealing with the Protestants, which you shouldn't be doing. So like I said, it just really became a big political thing. And then when James killed Patrick Farrell, it just made that part of the feud. So now, you know, in the end, the religious feud was was part of what caused all this bad relations with their neighbors. But disputes over land and stagecoach lines, which will come a little bit later, were the direct causes of the actual conflict. 
So let's fast forward a few years. The whole family's back together now. James is out of jail. They're all back. They're going to end up eventually starting a very successful stagecoach uh, line that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But of course, when they did that, there was more conflict, more barns being burned down, more horses killed, and everything that we heard earlier times 10. Only this time, you're going to find that both sides retaliated. It's not just the Donnellys, but they were the root of most of what happened. In the years that James got home, they started becoming a reputation for being uh, renegades, and it only got stronger. I mean, we are talking about a family that the very night that James was released from jail, they went and burned down the barn of a farmer that testified against James at his trial. So the first night out of jail, they done went and retaliated. Mm -hmm. This family stayed in trouble. In 1869, William Donnelly was charged with larceny. Then shortly after that, James Jr. and William were both charged for uh, robbing the post office in Granton, which was a nearby city. They were never convicted of either one, though. And in 1870, the Donnelly's barn was burnt down by one of their enemies. So we talked about the stagecoach. So in the early 1870s, the boys were getting married. They were starting their own families. Most people seem to think that they were kind of getting legitimate jobs and making honest living, and they were going to settle down. Mm -hmm. That was not going to be the case. In 1873, William started the stagecoach business that we previously mentioned. Some of his brothers helped him out with the business, and they ran uh, between London, Exeter, and Lucan, that we the little city we talked about earlier. So this was the best way to get around at this time. So business was really good. But with business comes competition, and we know what kind of competitors that the Donnellys were. So the owner of the competing business couldn't take the pressure. He eventually sold to a gentleman by the name of Patrick Flanagan. Patrick was a big man also, and he did not fear the Donnellys whatsoever. What soon happened was known as the stagecoach feud by all of the locals. This would come to a climax a few years later. So someone snuck into the Flanagan's barn and destroyed his stagecoach and attacked his horses. He discovered this the next morning when he goes out there and he said enough was enough. Patrick formed a lynch mob and they show up at the Donnelly's barn. They were ready to get some revenge on, on old Will and anybody else that was there. Turns out, though, they bit off a little more than they could chew. James Jr. and the rest of the boys were waiting on them. They burst out of the house with clubs, and the Donnellys were outnumbered three to one, but it didn't make a difference. It was like out of something out of like an action movie that you would see. They literally beat the lynch mob senseless. They were laying all around at their feet, bloody, battered, beaten. So that plan didn't work. <laughs> So let's fast forward now to February 4th, 1880. Now this is going to sound extremely ironic, but a group of vigilantes who were members of the Biddulph Peace Society showed up at the Donnellys looking for anything but peace. So let me paint the picture for you. It's late. There's a knock on the door. James Sr. goes down to answer the door. Now most of what I'm going to tell you came from a gentleman by the name of Johnny O'Connor. He was a young farmhand who was sleeping at the Donnelly's house that night, and this is what he testified in court. Johnny said he woke up, and he sees James Sr. getting dressed. 
Now, James had, had gone back upstairs to get dressed because the town constable by the name of James Carroll was downstairs in the kitchen waiting, and Tom Donnelly was out front, handcuffed and surrounded by a group of men. Tom, being a Donnelly, couldn't keep quiet, and he demanded to see a warrant from the constable, and then he told James Sr. he thinks he's smart. All hell broke loose after that. Twenty men with clubs and shovels barged into the kitchen. They tore into James Sr., Johanna, and Tom, beating them mercilessly. Tom was strong and quick, and he managed to barrel past the two. Even though he was in handcuffs, he, he banned managed to get past the group, and he made a run for it. Several men chased after him, and they finally caught him, and they beat him again outside. Then they brought him inside and threw him in the floor. Now, Johnny O'Connor, that we said that was upstairs, that they didn't know was upstairs, was hiding uh, under, underneath one of the beds, mm-hmm. the mattresses. He said he heard somebody in the mob say, hit that fellow on the head and break his skull open. And that's just what one of the members did. So now you've got Johanna, you've got James Sr., and you got Tom Donnelly all laying in the floor dead. You know one of the members of the Peace Society is the one who did that. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Several men then ran upstairs. They kicked the door open to a bedroom that the Donnelly's uh, visiting niece, 21-year-old Bridget, was sleeping in, and they killed her. Johnny was under a bed, like I said, and they had went in there and they poured coal oil on the mattress and set it on fire. And then they moved on, not realizing anybody else was in the house. Johnny was able to escape without being seen. So the Peace Society was not done yet, though. At approximately 2.30 a.m., they arrive at the home of William Donnelly. William, his wife, brother John, and a family friend were all asleep. John Donnelly was awakened by shots outside. So he went to the front door to see what was going on, and he opened the door. As the door opened up, he was shot twice. He was shot in the chest and in the pelvis. He collapsed into a bloody heap on the floor. Now, the mob, they thought this was William. That's who they were really there to, to, to kill. And so they shoot Tom, uh, John. They think it's William, so they go. They leave. I tell it out of there. John ended up dying a few minutes later on the kitchen floor. His last words were, Will, Will, I'm shot. Hmm. So what happened afterward? Well, despite Johnny O'Connor's eyewitness account, the court did not convict any of the vigilantes. His testimony and the confession of two of the murderers was not enough to get a conviction. And we're going to talk more about the, the murderers in a little bit. But the first trial ended in a hung jury. The second trial, exactly the same. Mainly because the case was too political. James Carroll, the town constable, which was the leader of the group there, and Father John Connolly, who was an important Catholic figure in the community, were both directly implicated to the massacre. If they had been prosecuted for the, trial, the crime successfully, that would have caused mass riots in the area and deep, deeper violence in Biddulph, and they just decided it was just better just to not do it since nobody liked the Donnelly's. The con, uh, yeah, the Donnelly's anyway. So they just said, you know, why make things even matter matters worse when you know that we're fighting the cause for some people that nobody even liked, mm-hmm. and they felt a lot of people felt that they just brought it on themselves. So for that reason, no one was ever punished 
for the Donnelly Massacre. To this day, the majority of residents of Lucan do not even talk about what happened to the Black Donnellys. They have removed or replaced all landmarks associated with them, and it's also my understanding that the local library does not have any books on the Donnellys whatsoever in there. They just choose not to. I will add, though, that at the end of the second trial, it looked like that there was going to be a third trial. In the spring of 1881, the the Feely brothers, James and William, were implicated in the deaths of the Donnellys. Now, this was the two uh, murder confessions that we talked about a little bit earlier. They claimed that they could also uh, implicate James Carroll and Father O'Connor, but rather than a trial, the attorney Charles Hutchison arranged to have the brothers extradited from the United States back to Ireland. So I guess get them out of the country and they can't sit here and testify, therefore Mm -hmm. we can't have a trial. So it was kind of a dirty way of doing things because instead of having a trial and doing what it could have been, they, (laughs) the court itself shipped the only two people that could have convicted out Mm -hmm. with their confession. So the Donnellys and some of the vigilantes are all buried in St. Patrick's Cemetery. Members of the Donnelly family chose to have the original tombstone removed due to vandalism. It was replaced with a much smaller stone that did not contain the words murdered, which was on the original headstone. I said earlier that most in the area do not like to speak of the Donnellys, but but others have embraced this part of the area history, even with a museum telling the story. Okay, so what about the paranormal stuff? Are you ready to get into that? Mm Mm-hmm. Rumor has it that the Roman line is haunted and horses will not travel down that road at nights of February 3rd or 4th, which is the anniversary of the massacre. And if they do, death will follow the horses. At least it has on three different horses who died shortly after trips on February 3rd or 4th. Hmm. There's a few different horse stories here. One of them says that the horses refuse to pass the old Donnelly property at all, and and it doesn't matter what time of the year it is the people will have to actually get off their horse and they'll have to walk their horses past the homestead and then they'll get on and can ride off again. There's also other tales about a headless horse galloping throughout Biddulph's township. Robert Noreen Norton bought the Donnelly house in 1974. That said, they had a friend board their horse there. One day, they found it running around in circles, nostrils flared, eyes were filled with terror as if something was chasing it, but there was nothing else in the barn area at all. They only had the horse there a month, and they decided they had to get rid of it for the safety of the horse. Mr. Norton was asked if he thought the property was haunted. Now, he's a little reluctant to say that it is, at least at first he was, but he said there is definitely some extracurricular activity that happens on the property. He wouldn't say ghost or spirit, but he did say that it was something. He said that, He prided himself on being a very rational man, and he didn't like to jump to conclusions. But he did say that he had bought a new green plaid hunting shirt at one point. It was hanging in the closet one day, and then it just vanished and reappeared a year and a half later in the same closet. It was washed and pressed and folded neatly and just appeared out of nowhere. Robert and Linda Salt own the property now, and they have definitely witnessed a few strange occurrences. Now, see, they moved in back in 1988, they started experiencing things almost immediately. Robert said he's sensitive to the paranormal, and he says he felt things the very first day that they were unpacking things into the barn, a barn that was built in 1877, mind you. He said he felt like he was being watched. 
They used to run some tours at the property, and a lot of the visitors came in. They said they had the same feeling as well, without knowing that was the situation that he had felt. That normally would be creepy enough, but some people that were visiting actually said that they've had someone or something touch them on the shoulder, only to turn around and have nobody standing there. Now, the Salts used to let people spend the night in the barn. They had one couple come out, and the next day, they said that they heard footsteps in the straw coming straight towards them, and the male said that he felt a pressure on his chest. There was another time there were two students that were taking a tour of the barn. They felt pressure applied to their chests as well. Now, one of them, this is kind of strange now, one of them said that they heard screams within the barn, but the screams were in her head, not coming from outside. Now, this is a phenomena known as clairaudience. And that's the power to be able to hear sound that's said to exit beyond the reach of ordinary experience, such as the voices of the dead. So, kind of creepy. So, that's the barn. What about the house? you got to figure there's got to be some stuff in the house. Now, let's keep in mind that the house that the Salts live in is not the original house. Because that house, if you remember, burnt down the night of the massacre. The next year, the remaining Donnelly brothers which were William, Patrick, and Robert, they all got together to build the middle part of the house that exists now. Now, this is the part of the house where most, most of these incidents uh, seem to have taken place. That's not to say that there aren't things that happen in the rest of the house, because they do. Things like phantom footsteps. Robert said he's been awoken on several nights to hear these footsteps on the stairs. He says one time, whoever or whatever it was making the footsteps called his name not once, but three times. He said the voice was soft, but with a firm, masculine tone. Another instance, he was taking a shower one afternoon, and he says that there was a shadow of someone come in the bathroom that he could see through the shower curtain. So the door opens up, something or someone walks in, he sees the shadow. So he just assumes that it's either his wife or his son, but he asked, and both said no, they had not came into the bathroom while he was taking a shower. So they tried to recreate this with his son, and they were not able to, um, so they have no clue even to this day who it was that walked in. Now the first year of living there, the Salts think that the Donnellys may have paid them a visit. Charlie Salts, who was the young son of the Salts at the time, he spotted some ghostly figures. So one Saturday morning, he was playing in his room. He frantically ran into the kitchen and told his parents that he saw four people in his room, a man and a woman dressed in plain black clothing and two children wearing white outfits. A&E came out there to do some filming one day for a special that they were doing on the Donnellys, and they brought in a psychic who roamed the house. Now, she claims that she found a female presence who she believes was Jeannie Donnelly, which was the, the, the daughter. And for whatever reason, when they burst into the house that night, she was in the house, but they did not kill her, but they killed everybody else. But she thinks that seems to be who it is. Other psychics have seen the same figures that Charlie Salt saw. Two spirits were described as stern-looking. One was tall, whiskered man dressed in a, a, what they, he, they described as homemade clothes. The other was a woman with her hair in a bun. She wore a simple dress and Victorian high-laced shoes. They felt that this was definitely James and Johanna Donnelly still roaming the homestead. 
Is it possible that the Don Lakes are actually trapped here in limbo, maybe because of the traumatic death that they had? Or is it possible that maybe they're just there to keep a watchful eye on the place that they worked so hard to make their own? So I guess we'll leave it up to you guys as to what happened. All right. Uh, real quick word from our sponsor, and then we're going to hear our interview with Keith Linder. Okay. Hey guys, we got Keith Linder on, and uh, Keith obviously is the author of the Bothell Hell House. We've had him on, had him on a few times after his first and his second book. Fascinating story. We've absolutely loved it. And we've got Keith on a third time for very good reason. The guys over at Ghost Adventures, and you all know how much I love them guys, they decided to have an episode of their Screaming Room, which is where they look back at previous episodes and they decided to look back at the Bothell Hell House. And that episode, for those of you that aren't as familiar with it, it's, I think, the only episode they've ever done to where they ended up really just bashing the homeowners and saying that they didn't find anything. And it really just because of a pissing match between uh, Keith and Zach and the crew and how they handled stuff once they got in there. So uh, I won't, let me take a second to welcome Keith Linder back on. Keith, thanks for coming on, buddy. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, having me on uh, short notice. Uh, feels good to be here. Thank you. Now, was my synopsis fairly on, on the spot there, Keith? Uh, yeah, uh, pretty much fairly on the spot. Um, and, and, and just for the record, cause I want your listeners to know, and this has happened twice. Um, you know, ghost adventures found me and Tina originally when they, when me and Tina were having our episode in the Bothell house, we had already been living in the home two years. Uh, they found us through local media, through friend of Dave Schrader. Um, so they found us the first time and, um, long story short, Several teams came in after them and lived in the house. Ghost Adventures, by their own admittance, did not live in the house. They don't live anywhere. They visit. But they were only there five hours. But several teams came in after them, and they lived there for a month. Uh, the United States team, led by Nikki Novelli, lived in the home four weeks. And Steve Maradon Phillips from the U.K. lived in the home two and a half weeks huge difference than five hours well a couple of weeks ago they did uh, i guess like you said a rehash or a revisit of the demons in seattle episode um it would have been interesting had they reached out to me to say for a status update uh for the evidence that other teams had found that way you can sort of educate your listeners if they have questions because a lot of people had questions after that episode uh they found me and they wanted to know if i was still in the home what happened to the home and why was the house haunted? But they never did. They never, they never did reach out to me. And I, and I was kind of weird. So it's not like, I don't want people to think um, I'm not chasing ghost adventures. If anything, they're, they're chasing me. And it would have been interesting had they just said in the episode that aired a couple of weeks ago, yeah, we didn't get anything while we were there. We didn't, you know, I don't think the paranormal committee would be mad at that. I'll hold them to that because most people will tell you paranormal investigations are hard, they're difficult, they're hard to troubleshoot, poltergeist cases especially, and this is a poltergeist case. But they didn't do that or they didn't leave it at that. They like to throw or suggest in your window. They like to throw conjecture, make false accusations, borderline slander, 
border, and by that I mean evidence or suggest hoaxing, suggest fakery, uh, even though they can't prove that, they saw no evidence of that. Keep in mind, they left with no evidence, and that includes hoaxing or fakery. But they throw the innuendos out there, and as you know, as I was raised, um, I'm going to address that. I'm going to answer any innuendo, any accusation, and as long as there's air in my lungs, I'm going to set the record straight because this case, now going on year six, has captured the imagination of a lot of different people. That's just not me. That's just people still interested in this case. Like I said, they revisit the case five years after they've left the house. So that's why I'm here today. I'm here to answer your questions and also any listeners or just questions in general. And we can go through some of the things that they said on the episode because they seem to get hung up. And I don't know why they're getting hung up or tripped up on the wall writings on my reactions to objects flying in the home to Tina. What's this fascination with Tina, my ex-girlfriend and a whole bunch of slew of other things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So let me ask you this. How did you first come to realize that they were going to be covering this episode on, on the screaming room? Good question. So I have, cause I have two books out there and uh, I have, you know, Google search allows you to go in and it'll flag keywords, meaning people the world over who um, publish something, state something, write something, news content, so it'll flag those things. If you put words that you want it to flag, it'll send it to your inbox. So I have anything related to demons in Seattle come to my inbox. Anything that says Keith Linder come to my inbox. And that's how I caught wind of it. I got a, a, a Gmail news alert. And it was a travel channel. It said travel channel is airing a demons in Seattle decoded, da-da-da-da-da. Zach Baggins and so-and-so and so-and-so are revisiting a demon house in Seattle. So that's how I got, I got it through... AI through Gmail through Google. You know, here's what kind of surprised me. You know, they they go back from the beginning and say, eh, really not much there. That's their their whole thought process on it. Why do you think that would be one of the episodes that they would choose to revisit out of hundreds of episodes they put out? Why do you think they chose to go back and revisit that episode when they claimed that it was basically nothing there? Uh, good question. I got it through good word of mouth, uh, through people who are sort of in the middle, who um, love my case, know my case, but are in the know in communication with the Ghost Adventures crew. Um, you have to understand, rarely, this, this is, I don't think this has ever happened, where a house occupant has come out with other researchers' published evidence two books to sort of do the counterweight as to what they found or didn't find. And that grew legs. They never anticipated that me, the homeowner would check them with truth. I'm checking them with truth. And that this case five years later, um, will come back and bite them. And I, and I really mean, and by bite them, I mean, you know, I, I, cause they, they slandered me and Tina. They did that. So if you're going to slander me, I'm going to put the truth out there. So I put out their schedule. I put out their itinerary in the Bothell home. I, I, I listed in PDF. This is not my writing. This is their documentation, their publishing company or production company outlining the amount of hours they're going to spend in the Bothell home because they never made that public in the episode. They never would. Well, I did. And I put all my email back and forth exchanges with them. 
uh, before, during, and after. And then the evidence that came from Steve Mara and Don Phillips and the other teams. So they never they never planned for that. Most people just, you know, that go on their show, there's no life after. They, they really, you never hear from them again. You really, if, if you found these people down and tracked them, I'm pretty sure some of them will have an interesting story to take or an interesting opinion about their experience with Ghost Adventures. So I think they had to revisit it because there was just so much information out there. There's a documentary out there. Uh, you've seen it. It's an hour mm-hmm. and a half. The documentary is free. So people can't say the money angle. The documentary is on YouTube. It's free for anybody. It's an hour long. It's professionally done. And it shows you the two and a half weeks of when Steve and Dawn were there. And anybody can weigh and be the jury after watching that episode and make up their own minds. There's the two books. There's the evidence in both books. Uh, Nikki Novelli has gone on multiple radio shows. She's a well-respected paranormal researcher. Nikki Novelli is in her field. And she's gone on the record to say, yeah, we lived in the house. We monitored it for eight months, and we lived in it for a month. There's something there. You know, and Carissa did something similar. Uh, Nick Kyle, president or then president of the SSPR, the Scottish Society of Psychological Research, lived in the home for a week and a half as well. So you have all these different um, lanes, if you will, information lanes, and they all, in one way or another, finally reached back to Ghost Adventures. I was really shocked that, that they would double down, um, but they have the, I mean, they had no choice, but Ego lets you do that. I mean, it would have been best just to say, we didn't get anything, we didn't find anything, um, we have questions, uh, but if you have questions, then you should ask them. Don't speculate on live TV. Ask, email me. They, the questions you saw in that episode where they're saying, well, he looks so calm. There. He looks calm when the candles are being thrown in. The who, who, who looks calm like that? Zach was in my house hours. It never did he throw that question at me. Why would you ask a question on television that you can ask me when I'm standing right next to you? And also, if it looks like spray paint, like he said in the episode, it looks like spray paint. Why did you take any with you? Why did you have the, the, the black oil tested? There are places that you can test things, and they'll tell you what is spray paint. They'll tell you the manufacturer. They'll tell you what city and state it was bought in. And they'll tell you what store it was sold at if you really drill down to it. And I know they have the resources to do that, and that's what a good investigator would have done. They would have took samples of the wall writings had it analyzed, and if it came back spray paint, then you got me. You got me and Tina. Aha. All right. We confess. You got us. It was bought at Walmart. That's what your test would have told you. But they didn't do that. They just speculated. And then speculation becomes the truth in their world to their fans. But no, I'm going to call them out on it. I'm going to call them out on it, especially when I, after they left, had the wall analysis or the wall writings tested. And I've gone on the record, it's been on the record for four years now, it's bone black. I still have samples of the door. I still have samples of the wall. Nobody has come up to me and wanted to do their own sample of my sample. And nobody ever will. And they actually show some of that in the documentary uh, of some, you know, some of the different aspects of the of the type of uh, whatever that substance is on, on some cars and, and uh, trunks of cars and our truck beds and and from the door and all that stuff. Cause I know you guys tried to have some testing and stuff done on it. Yeah. And you're right. That's in Stephen uh, Don's documentary. 
Because once again, they're researchers. They came and looked at the pattern, studied the pattern. Um, you saw the yellow oil seeping from the walls. Uh, Nick Kyle was there. Uh, the black oil is very, um, it's very interesting, very acrylic-like. Um, it seems to bleed through paint fairly well. And it's all over the, it's all over the office. It's, it's on the ceiling. It's behind furniture. It's behind hard to move things, and it just—I think—I just think Ghost Adventures take the easy way out of if we don't get evidence, then we have to assume. Well, we can't say it directly for legal reasons, but we'll assume we'll throw the innuendo out there that ah, oh, it's hoaxing, ah, it's spray paint, ah, yeah, yeah, it's attention seeking, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Zach Baggins. If I don't feel it in my gut, if I don't get a a, a twitch in my in her stomach or something, then it, it's something. But um, that's not professionalism. That's not scientific. And everything I've done after they left has been scientific. Um, the tools that determine the, 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 the analysis of the wall, that's not, I didn't learn, get that from ghost equipment. I got that from scientific tools. And they had same, the same access to these same tools. And they seem to have a love infatuation with the word demon and an ignorance of the word poltergeist because everything that me and Tina experience comes right out of poltergeist cases. I'm talking about previous cases historically of poltergeist activity in Europe, North America, South America, and Asia, and Australia. Nothing we brought to the world about our experience should be new to a paranormal researcher if you understand poltergeist behavior. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the demon, you know, the, you know your your books that came out. Obviously, it's the the Bothell Hell House, and then attachments uh, Poltergeist of Washington State. Now, when they came in and did theirs, they labeled it basically the Demons of Seattle, and so that's where the whole demon aspect of this came from. Was from them. Am I correct, or am I off on that? No, you're correct. Me and T and I, when we you know were seeking help. We rarely use the word demon. We just said we got a haunted house. I never knew the term poltergeist. I just said I got a crazy house. I have my common sense, and it's just crazy. When I talked to Dave Schrader, I didn't say, Dave, can you save me from the demons, or can you come here and investigate the demons? I didn't even say that when they came. This, that's their word. That's their terminology. I know what it does. It, it brings the audience in. I mean, you're trying to get viewers, right? I mean, it's a show. You're trying to get viewers but you're saying demons in Seattle, knowing well ahead of time that you left with no evidence. But you have a right to name your show, and then you sort of put it on us like, well, if it was demons, then why are they sleeping in the next room, or why are they da 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 We never told you it was demons. They keep saying just because Bibles are catching fire, that's demons. Portuguese are known, some Portuguese cases, 10% of Portuguese cases, there is a fire phenomena associated with it there is there's a fire element to it not all cases but some and then those cases specifically religious religious objects get burned we were advised to put our religious objects out to ward off the spirits to make them hit the highway and the spirits tripled down and took our religious objects and turned them on fire that's not a hard sell if you understand Portuguese history. But they saying, oh, it's Bible burning and demons and 
wall writings and why would a demon write 666 and Native American symbol? And that's just, that's just ignorant. I mean, it exposes them to ignorance because if you research Bothell or the state of Washington, you know, Native Americans were all over here. Google Bothell, Washington, Snohomish County, and you'll find the Duwamish tribe, the Willow People tribe, the Snohomish tribe, all through Bothell. You know, the demon or the poltergeist specifically, when they write 666 on our wall, they're not really trying to say I'm Lucifer incarnate. They're really trying to do two things. The first thing they're trying to do is, you know, scare the heck out of me and Tina, raise our fear factor up. But believe it or not, the 666 didn't terrify us. I said this in my book, that never terrified us. The fires did, but not the 666, because, because I saw right through what the Portuguese was trying to do. It's trying to go into our old Hollywood fears of exorcism of the daemon and all these old shows we see where 666 is just used profusely, and it's trying to play off that. It's, it's taking our psyche and using it against us. But we saw through that. The second thing this Portuguese is trying to do is it's trying to ward off or create skeptics in anybody that we reach out for help because it wants somebody like a Zach Baggins to come in to say, ah, 666, ah, okay, whatever. Okay, that's the dead giveaway. Huh, we've seen that before. That's just a dead <laughs> giveaway for something to be fake. And to believe it or not, and it's kind of embarrassing, they fell for it. They, they fell for something me and Tina didn't fall for, something Steve Mara, parapsychologist Steve Mara didn't fall for, and Don Phillips didn't fall for. Because they know, because they research other poltergeist cases. You're dealing with an intelligent entity, an intelligent haunting that has an enormous IQ that's been doing this for a while, and it's going to be evasive, it's going to be elusive, it's going to be trickery. One of the um, descriptions given for poltergeist is a trickster. That's their MO. That's what they do. They, they're, trick, they're tricksters. They'll buy their time, they'll go into hiding. They'll go dormant when their researchers come in, make the house look all docile, like the home occupants don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're doing it themselves. And then the minute the, the paranormal researchers leave, it's game on again. Why ghost adventures can't figure that out uh, just riddles me. I want to point out real quick, because we get new listeners all the time, so there's and no doubt we're going to have some people listening to this episode that haven't heard your other two episodes and aren't as familiar with the case. So I just want to tell people that the first interview we did with Keith, where he actually broke down everything that happened in his house, everything that's in the first book, uh, that happened back in uh, March of 2018. So if you'll go back to March 2018, we've got that one. And then he came on again uh, December of 2019, and uh, we had another long conversation about things that have happened since then and talked about the uh, uh, documentary and everything on there. So I would advise people to go back if you like what you're hearing and, and, are, and are kind of in the dark on some of this stuff and go back and listen to those two episodes and it'll enlighten yeah. you a little bit. And then also there's all kinds of stuff. Like I said, the documentaries out there on YouTube. Uh, so they can actually show you a lot of that stuff. So just wanted to point that out to listeners that might be hearing uh, this for the first time. Yeah. And you're right. Like I said, this, the information I've made 99.99% of the information free and accessible to anyone. Um, I'm in IT. I've been in IT for a while. And I throw all the evidence on YouTube. I put it on the cloud. It gets duplicated a trillion times. 
and listeners can go there and look at the evidence themselves. If you watch, or if you haven't watched, uh, please do. I encourage you, watch the Demons in Seattle episode. Watch it. Then watch the Demons in Seattle Uncovered documentary. And I'm pretty sure 20 minutes in, you're going to figure out how one team got nothing and how another team did. And it's just clear as night and day as to the methodology being applied. Um, Five hours is not a long time to investigate a home. It's not. Most paranormal teams, the ones I dealt with locally, um, they come, and even they don't live in the home. They come in, do 5, 6, 11, 12 hours, and they're gone. Few make a return visit a week later or so, but you really have to live in the home and you don't, and you really can't send me and Tina away. Remember the whole moniker about ghost adventures is we do our lockdown when we send the home occupants or the tenants away or the property owner away and we do our lockdown. You cannot have a template. One template fits all investigations all investigations are unique unto themselves. If I tell you two months before you arrive, or a few weeks in, in Zach's case before you arrive, that a majority, majority of the activity happened during the day, why are you pinning your investigation at night? If I tell you a majority of act, act, activity happened while we were home, why are you sending us away? No other team did that, and that's why they got a treasure trove of evidence because poltergeist cases are not like residual haunted. I know ghost adventures do a majority of their investigations on residual hauntings. They're chasing ghosts. They're going into abandoned buildings and going through stairways and hallways that have been closed and abandoned for years or hospitals. That's not poltergeist work. Poltergeist is way different. You're dealing with an entity that knows you're coming before you even arrive, who's rummaging through your equipment the minute you walk through the front door, who sees you from all angles and you see nothing. There were a couple of moments in the episode, I think you might remember this, where their equipment was dying, where they were having uh, battery drainage. Um, that's known in Portuguese cases. Is it paranormal? Not exactly. But you should be able to recognize that, hey, that might be something worth troubleshooting because one of the things Keith has always been saying before we got here is when he puts up his own equipment, they get manipulated, battery drainers, they get unplugged, they go missing, they get turned upside down. And that happened to Steve and Don's cameras. They had a few cameras that had battery issues or electrical issues. And they pivoted. They realized that, oh, we're dealing with a spirit, once again, trickster, who wants to play games, who wants to be evasive. Well, we have we have methodologies that can bring that out. We, we can go around the barn with this poltergeist. It won't be easy. It's not guaranteed. But you just don't shrug it off like they did in the episode. And, oh, put another battery in there. We'll wait. All right, we good? All right, we're live? Okay. All right, good. You, you don't do that. You you go really go drill down and see. Put that battery in another camera. Is it running? Oh, it says ninety percent in this one. We'll put it back in that one. It says twenty. You know, 
So all these different things that normally in their episodes, if you watch some of their past episodes, that would have been enough right there to call this house Demon Incarnate House. <laughs> normally. Right. That's just, you know, final dust orb. Oh, my God, this is Satan's home address. Normally, <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they do. But for us, it, they just seem to be um, down a different avenue. That's a good question because that's that leads me to my next question. Actually, the I know a lot of these television shows they go to multiple locations and only a part of them end up on television, either because they didn't find anything or it just wasn't interesting or just they just wouldn't have to make a TV show hmm. out of it. So why do you think your situation ended up on TV just to basically say we didn't find anything instead of just on the cutting room floor of we didn't find anything. It's it's almost like it was more of a personal thing. Uh, good question. If you go back and look at when Ghost Adventures came into our house, I um, this is in my book. This was November, early December of 2014. Uh, Nick had just left the show. There was a controversy in the Ghost Adventures universe of everything they do is too good to be true. These guys are batting a thousand. They go to a home. It's always haunted. Nobody does that in the paranormal field, but evidently Ghost Adventures does. They go into a home and wow, they find evidence. And then Nick left. Nick left and it was never publicly stated as his reason for leaving. And that's probably because of his contract. But he left. And that was during the time Nick, was, believe it or not, was supposed to be at the Bothell house. He left uh, maybe a week or two before they finally made it to our home. He departed the, the, the show. So Nick is gone. But the controversy about that was they faked some of the episodes that they did previously as to why they are batting a thousand when it comes to evidence. I don't know if that's true. But that was told to me. What we do know is true, and this is easily verifiable, that Nick left around the time of my of that Ghost Adventures visiting our home. So there was some controversy there. Also, we noticed at the same time, there was another haunted house coming out of Indiana, the one Zach bought that made the demon in uh, Seattle, or, or the demon house. It's called the demon house that he made a do- his own documentary of. Yep. He, I think he was just recently acquired that home or in the process of acquiring that home. Um, and then here comes this home in Bothell and um, burning Bibles and, and whatnot. And um, they got to our house very fast. It was very quick. I remember when they contacted us and they were like, we want to get there like right away. It was, it was very, I was very like shocked how they didn't, well, dude, I could be a crazy dude. I could be a loony dude. You're not going to vet me or put me through the ringer or whatever. And it was like, no, we we're coming, we're coming, we're coming. So I'm like, wow, okay. So they came relatively fast. And then when they got there, um, or when I saw the itinerary of how long they were going to actually investigate, I told Tina, well, they're not really spending that much time investigating. They're, they're really, really not. So long story short, I think um, when you film an episode, any episode, you can, you know, you don't have to be Ghost Adventures, any episode, especially reality television. Um, if, you, if you're a paranormal investigator, had they found something, Ghost Adventures, had they found something, the episode would have been different. The episode would have been, we found something, aha, Zach saves the day. Zach saves Keith and Tina. We found something. 
we certify this house demon house and we're going to help Keith and Tina. I remember Zach says in the episode and I, and, I, and this is just so uh, rhetorical. We're not leaving until we find answers. We're not going to leave you guys until we get to the bottom of this, until we find answers. And they made that seem like long-term indefinite when it really was. It was only five hours. <laughs> they sent us the itinerary before they even arrived. So they knew how long they were going to be at the house where they found nothing or not. So then when the episode airs, based on them not finding anything, you got you to gotta tell a story um, and then edit it the way you want to come out to make you look good. It was perfect timing in a sense because afterwards, and I don't know, and Zach doesn't do this, and you wouldn't notice, but I'll tell you, um, the episode aired Saturday. Zach was on whatever uh, Dave Schrader show he had at the time on Coast to Coast. Um, he went on that show Monday uh, and talked about the Demons in Seattle episode and was really championing him and his team's ability of saying, see, 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 we don't always get evidence. See, see, we don't always get evidence. And I think they wanted to use our, our show as a post, as the poster child, as an example of, to their listeners or most of the critics and cynics to say, we hear episodes where we don't get stuff. Exhibit A, Demons in Seattle. So I think that's why they aired it, because keep in mind, like I said, when Nick left, they were getting highly chewed up and criticized as to it's too good to be true. Nobody gets evidence in every episode, but evidence Ghost Adventures does. And then when Nick left and didn't state his reason openly as to leaving, um, that was the case. How did uh, Dave Schrader get caught up in the middle of all this? Dave knew, or the news reporter who came to my home to film me, uh, who caught wind of our ordeal, October 30th, October 30th, 2014, uh, day before Halloween. And she did a, a story, and this is on online, on Como, Como Seattle, just Google Keith Linder, you'll see that interview, where she interviews me, and she's talking about the burnt Bibles, and I'm, I'm giving her the the 411 about what's going on in the house. Um, I don't know who Dave Schrader is. She, she didn't mention it during that interview. But afterwards, she heard the loud bang. And you can see that during the interview because the interview just stops. She's like, what was that? Well, when we're, when they're wrapping up, her and the camera guy are getting their stuff together. She's like she's like trying to run out of the house. <laughs> and she says, hey, I, I know a guy. I know a guy, uh, Dave Schrader. Um, he does some little radio deal. He's in paranormal. Um I'm gonna call him. He, I'm a, he might be able to. They even said that when the, when the news piece aired uh, that night, that same night, they ended the the news piece, the segment saying, uh, "Elisa Jaffe." That's her name. Elisa Jaffe, the reporter, said that she's reached out to uh, Dave Schrader. She's already talked to him already. Man, it was real quick. She already talked to him, and that she's gonna have. He's gonna call me. Dave called me the next day, October thirty first, November first. He called me the next day, and um, said that he was pretty sure um, him and Ghost Adventures wanted to come to the house. And we only talked 15 minutes. That, that's the that's the vetting 15-minute phone call to get on a, on a show. Steve and Don, when they, before they came, interviewed me and vetted me for four months. Hmm. Just back and forth, constant interview, evaluations, Skype meeting, video chat, uh, questionnaire after questionnaire, 
they really put me through the ringer because they're looking for inconsistencies in my story. You know, I've been in this, for lack of a better word, field for six years now, and my story never changes. Other people's story change, but my story stays the same. And when you vet somebody that long the way they did, somebody's going to trip up. Your story's going to trip up somewhere. You're going to get, you know, confused or, or something. And they, they, they didn't find that. They, 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 the, the result of their evaluations multiple times came about this guy is sincerely sincere. Um, he's not crazy. And, um, yeah, there might be some truth to what, he, to what he's saying. When I talked today, we talked during my break because I was at work when he called. I remember it. I got a call, went to voicemail. I, I left my computer desk, called him back. He answered. We talked about 15 minutes. That's it. 15 he asked me a few questions about the cabinets moving off and on, about the burning Bibles, and how do I feel about him and the crew coming down there to, to check for themselves. That was it. Interesting. Not, not even a video chat to see if my eyes or where my eyes go while I'm talking or where he's answering me questions, you know, which was Steve, which was what Steve and Don did. They would not interview me unless it was a visual interview. Interesting. So, Keith, is there any final words on that show? that you want to uh, put out before we get off of here tonight? Uh, not, not, not much about the show. Like I said, I was surprised. Um, the evidence is out there. Um, they have it. I've sent them to, I've always sent ghost adventures through the channels that they left open for me uh, prior to them leaving home last time. And they have all the evidence. I was really surprised at them to go the angle of, well, Stephen Dahl might not be credible, or teams after us might not be credible. Really? You're going to say that? <laughs> you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? So, so I saw that, but no, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, he's like, well, he's angry, he's angry. Dude, I'm not angry. You know, I'm not angry. I just put the evidence out there. I just put it out there. We never said demons, 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 you know. We, we never said that. Y'all said that, you know. And that the evidence speaks for itself. And if anybody doubts, they can watch the documentary and make up their own mind. You know, if you're a fan of the show, if you're biased and you got a prism of ghost adventures, then nothing I tell you is going to change your mind. I, I'm a realist. I know that. Nothing. And this is not for you. Ghost adventures is your definition of truth. And that's fine. But if you have a sincerity about the paranormal, if you have questions because of your own experience or family member, or you just want to know, then follow the evidence and let the evidence tell you or help you make up your mind. That's the only reason why I'm here, and that's the only reason why I appreciate you uh, giving me this opportunity to speak again. It's no problem. Before we get off of here, go ahead and tell everybody again how they can keep up with uh, you and all of your social media and, and where they can get the books and watch the videos. Yeah, so the evidence of the videos is on YouTube. Uh, my channel is easy to find, Keith L, Keith Space L, and there's over 500 videos there waiting for you. Um, multiple categories, if you like fire, if you like objects thrown, apparitions, shadowy figures, water puddle phenomena, interviews, uh, reports, statements from the researchers, it's all there. Um, so yeah, YouTube is one. And then also the books themselves, The Bothell Hell House, uh, part one. It's on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback version. Uh, Attachments, Poltergeist of Washington State is part two. It's on Amazon, paperback, and Kindle version. 
as well. These books are dirt cheap, and they got over, I think, book three, I mean, book two has over 300 hours of video evidence. I broke book one's record of having over 168 hours. And that's just all evidence. That's just me talking. I'm not giving you my blah, blah, blah. I'm giving you the researcher's evidence. So um, those avenues are, way, are the best way to reach me. And let me jump in there, Keith. When you, when you tell people who might not understand what you're saying about how's a book got 300 hours of video evidence, these books, as I've said on the other shows, they're interactive books. They You'll get to a point, and then it'll tell you a website to go to, or it'll tell you where the video's at, or yeah. it'll show you a diagram or a picture. I've never seen books laid out like, like these two books have laid out. So it really does take you to a point and then send you elsewhere, almost like giving you homework to do. It's really cool setup. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks for uh, reminding me of that because you're right, it is interactive. I tell people, you know, read the book, just zoom through it the first time, you know, get the story down, the timeline down, and then go back and start clicking on the links. It's, of course, it's easier on the, on the Kindle than a paperback, but you're going to be rewarded. I, I will reward you. I'm not here to waste the reader's time. You're going to be rewarded. The documentary, the one hour and 30 minute, it's in there. And you're right, it's interactive. When I hear a loud bang that wakes me and Tina up in the middle of the night, that's in that chapter on the timeline of when that happened. And then you can click on it, get your earphones on, and you're going to hear it. You're going to be like, whoa, whoa. You know, that, that's, that's that. But you're right, it's interactive. And it's, I want it to be that way because, like I said, it's all out there on the cloud. It's on the Internet. And a book just sort of condenses it for you. So now you have a little folder with everything you need to know about the Bothell House and both books are already organized for you. So, yeah, it's catalog. All right, brother. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, once again, thank you so much for sharing the knowledge of uh, what went on with Ghost Adventures out at the house and what's went on since. Hey, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. All right, guys, that wraps up this week. Hope you guys had a good time. Don't forget that we still have tickets on sale for the Pigeon Forge show with uh, us and Graveyard Tales. We only have about 25 tickets left, so go ahead and snag those. Like I said, we'll be social distancing if we need to, and we'll also have plenty of hand sanitizer and disinfectant on the set. So come on out and have a good time, and uh, hope you guys enjoy. <laughs>